We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look at Mark in chapter 1 with me. In verse, just verse 9, 10, 11, the baptism of Jesus. When I was at Dallas Seminary back in 1977 to 82, my first class I ever took was a guy named Robert Leitner, and he taught what was called Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And uh, we used a textbook by the president of the seminary, John Leitner. The textbook was called Jesus Christ, Our Lord. And the class, like the textbook, walked through Christ chronologically, step by step. It started with his pre-incarnation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then the, the prophecies of him in the Old Testament. Uh, his, uh, the coming of the forerunner of John the Baptist. His incarnation, his... Uh, his birth of a, a born of a virgin, the worship of the wise men, his baptism, his temptation, his Judean ministry, the Galilean ministry. And we just walked through every day. And though I knew it, I now was able to see it even more clearly. That, you know, when you're a non-Christian, you kind of think the Bible is a shotgun thing of just what a whole lot of people thought about God. Just come together, just kind of glued together. And I came to see that, and I was a young guy, I was just 26, and I was able to see that it is a chronological story. It presents something that happened, that was prophesied, realized, and is now being enjoyed. And someday is anticipated when he returns, that it's the meta-narrative. You study history, but you don't know where it comes from, why it's doing, and where it's going. The Bible's the meta-narrative, and it's all summed up in this one life of Jesus. There was a fellow named um, Gresham Machen who wrote back in the days of uh, uh, whenever liberalism was coming into the United States. He was a professor at Princeton, and in 1915, he wrote a, a particular book, and he said something in it that uh, Bruce Shelley quotes in his book on church history. And he said, Machen said, the student of the New Testament, he said, should be primarily an historian. The Bible contains a record of something that has happened, something that puts a new face upon life. It is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The authority of the Bible should be tested here at this central point. Is the Bible right about Jesus? a teacher, example, or is he indeed the savior of man? Is this God who has entered into humanity? C.S. Lewis once said, if Jesus Christ is God and died for us and rose from the dead, then worry not about all the rest of the miracles. He said, they're, they're small potatoes. If he became a man and died and rose, then the greatest miracle is done. God has encountered mankind. And Bruce Shelley, in his book, talks about liberalism that came in in the early 1900s and of Gresham Machen of Princeton. He was the vanguard that stood against it. And he said that when he wrote that, Shelley says, here too are the marks from Machen of what a fundamentalist is. It is a belief in a supernatural Jesus attested by the resurrection from the dead, that he's not just a good guy, that this is God who has taken his place among us. And then secondly, a trustworthy Bible, the fountain of the Christian faith that gives rise to it, that this book tells us who he is. No other book can do that because no other book has the claim to be the very word of God. And then thirdly, the need of mankind to have, quote, a new face upon life, to see life from an altogether different perspective. And so that is kind of what Mark does and the Gospels do. When they show you the life of Jesus, this is not just like Pascal's Pincy's different thoughts that he had. This is a chronological presentation of, from eternity to eternity of this person that took his place. Do you remember what John wrote? These things have been written that you might believe that he is the son of God and by believing they have a life in his name. 
And he said, many other works Jesus did, which if they were written, the libraries of the world could not hold them. That we have enough trouble reading this much on him. He said, we couldn't write all that we could if we needed to write about Jesus. And so John Mark will begin right in the ministry of Christ to writing to the Romans that were pragmatists that wanted to know, can he fix it down here? Can he make it right? These people that failed in empire and imperialism building, can this man make it right? Remember that when Christ came, he was coming when the Roman Empire was beginning its careening in decline. They had failed as the Greeks had failed and the Persians had failed and the Babylonians had failed and the Assyrians had failed and the Egyptians had failed and the Tower of Babel had failed. And so can he make it right? And so he begins in the ministry of Jesus. Are you with me? So I want to hopefully in these next few weeks is to take you through chronologically the life of this man. He is called in the book of 1 John, the life manifested, capital T, capital L. How would you like to have that said about you? You are the life. This is what it looks like. Well, why does he begin with the forerunner? Why does Mark begin with John the Baptist? Well, for four reasons. Number one is that you have to. The last Old Testament verse is, the next voice you hear will be the voice of Elijah, the head of the prophetic order, the one in the spirit and power of Elijah, John the Baptist. So if you don't have a John the Baptist, you can't have Jesus. Did y'all just catch that? If anyone is going to claim to be the Messiah, you have to have a forerunner. And he has to dress in camel's hair, eat locust and wild honey, and preach, prepare you the way of the Lord. He has to preach judgment is coming unless you repent. And that is John the Baptist. He is, as Jesus said to him, Messiah, the doorkeeper opens. John chapter 10. He's the doorkeeper. He is, you ever seen the movie Journey to the Center of the Earth? Not the new one, the false one, but the one with Pat Boone. Okay. <laughs> Where the guy dies down at the center of the earth and his hand is pointing to the only opening to the other world. And that is who John the Baptist is. The last Old Testament prophet is doing this. He doesn't say Messiah is coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. There he is. And so the seal of the Old Testament is the beginning of the new. This is him. And secondly, he is the reformer. He calls the nation back. The nation of Israel had not taken away from the Bible. They had added to it that salvation is by belief in God and by keeping all of our interpretation in the Talmud of the oral tradition of what we think the law said. That was, nobody knew their Bible, but they knew the recording of the oral tradition, the Talmud of the Mishnah. And so John the Baptist calls you back to sola scriptura. That's why Jesus never quotes tradition. Did y'all know that? He never quotes the Talmud. Matter of fact, when he taught, you remember what everybody said? We've never heard this, a teaching as having authority. He goes back to the Bible. And so John the Baptist called for reform. He called for repentance, for sorrow, and for metanoia. It's the Greek word for repentance. Nous, the mind, meta, to change it. At the deepest level, you're to want change. That's repentance. And he preached baptism, not just for a Gentile to be dunked, but for all of us to be dunked because before God, we are all equally guilty. Amen. And we are to be dunked and cleansed. And it was a baptism for repentance, for forgiveness, that we all need to be washed clean of what we have done. Salvation is not an appeal to God for... Uh, a reward. It is not an appeal to God 
to say you're good enough. It's not an appeal for, uh, oh, what's the word? For a bestowance by God because of what you've done. Salvation is an appeal to God for mercy, to remember not what I have done, to forgive me, and to give me as a free gift righteousness. And so there is repentance, there is baptism, and there is an appeal not for recompense or reward, but an appeal for forgiveness. And then thirdly, he is announcing one who is coming. You remember they came to John and they said, he that was with you beyond the Jordan to whom came to you, all are going to him. We're losing our clientele. Everybody's defecting over to Jesus. And John said, boys, it's okay. Uh, he that is coming is greater than I. He is above all. He said, I do not have the right to unlatch the thong of his sandals. You remember what he said? He must increase. I must decrease. I've got to become like the stars when the sun comes out. Because my job is not being the Savior, but pointing to the Savior. And so, no, I'm not going to call attention to me. I'm calling attention to him. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not that it's coming. It's here. The king has come. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 through verse 27. It's prophesied the Messiah would wash you clean with pure water and would place the spirit of God within you to give you the willingness to obey him under grace. In other words, you are born of water and spirit. Ezekiel 36. And so John uh, is the promised one. John calls for reform and God points to Jesus. Just what Elijah would do. And because of that, that's the fourth thing. He gets a clientele. Jesus doesn't have to campaign to be the Messiah. He doesn't go from zero to 60. He comes and there was, if you'll notice verse five, all the country of Judea was going out to him. Did you see that? All the country of Judea. This is I believe it's the largest of all the Jewish tribes. And all of Judea is going out to him. And all of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And so there is this enormous calling out of those who feared God, the remnant, calling them to John. And John doesn't let them think that he's the final thing. One is coming that is greater than I. Get ready. And so you remember this text? They are all going to him and leaving us. And, and John said, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. And to him, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices to hear his voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John says, I'm just the best man. I'm rejoicing to see him get his bride, the faithful of Israel that are coming out and heeding the preaching of the law, coming back to God. He said, that's my job. He said, I want to fade away. I want to disappear. And so his ministry was for six months. Jesus began at the age of 30. We're told in the book of Luke. How much older than Jesus was John the Baptist? Six months. They're distant cousins. And so for six months, the rumors are out there. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. This is the child of Zacharias that 30 years ago came mute from the temple and told us in writing, his name shall be John. And the word went out everywhere. What kind of child shall this man become? Remember that in Luke? Well, he's here. And so uh, the last Old Testament prophet designated by Malachi 500 years earlier has now summoned and prepared a people prepared for the Lord. It's like a baby that's about to be born. Uh, two of his disciples we know are John and Andrew. And Andrew goes and gets Peter. 
John goes and uh, let's see, or Philip was another one, went and got uh, Nathaniel. And so already this hub of the disciples is being formed. And that is why how many gospels tell you about John the Baptist? Four. Because if you don't begin with John the Baptist, you can't have Jesus. You have to pass through the stargate. You've got to go through this person that says this is him. And that's why the book of Acts also recalls John completing his ministry. He's the one. And so uh, a fellow named Edersheim that wrote this book. This is good reading by your bedside. Okay. Uh, the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, I wrote it in 1893. He said an interesting phrase. He said, the law of God came in Exodus 20. And the people of God were called to the foot of the mountain. And they saw the miraculous in a burning mountain of Sinai. And they were told in Exodus 19, for three days, you're about to meet with God. God said, I want you to wash your garments and I want you to consecrate your hearts. And he said, do not go near a woman. The external is I want you to wash your garments. The symbol substance is I want your heart to be right. Do not be tempted by lust. You get your hearts right because you're about to meet with God. And Edersheim said to a Jew, that is what the baptism of John would have been. It is getting the nation ready washed, repentant, ready to meet their king. Isn't that good? I don't know if that's true, but it ought to be. All right. Another good thing to look at. Uh, well, let's just continue. In verse 9, uh, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, why do we need a baptism of Jesus? You remember John the Baptist said, this doesn't seem right. He said, I need to be baptized by you, not you by me. I'm not worthy of doing this. Uh, Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, you just trust me, it says this, Matthew 3. John said, I have need to be baptized by you. I cannot baptize you. And Jesus said, permit it at this time. For it is fitting that we fulfill all righteousness. Christ was the perfect Jew. And he submitted himself, though he was the holy son of God, to all that a Jew was to do. Question. When he was born, uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Did Jesus need to be circumcised? Circumcision predicted that the seed of the woman would come to redeem. He was the seed. Did he need to be circumcised? No. It symbolized that the flesh is removed. That occurs with us by the, uh, it says the body, of, uh, the body of the flesh is removed by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised up with him through faith. He is the reality of our flesh removed. Of all the guys of Israel that didn't need to be circumcised, it was Jesus. Did he get circumcised? Yes. Why? Because that is what the righteous Jew would do. Uh, his mother presented up a sin offering and a burnt offering. Did Jesus need, as a child, a sin offering? Have you women noticed that when you give birth to a child, something's wrong with them? They're going to grow up into us. And so they would offer up a sin offering. I've brought a new sinner into the world. And a burnt offering, I will raise him in the admonition of God. Did Jesus need a sin offering and a burnt offering? No. But that's what a Jew would do. Uh, they dedicated him. Uh, he was already uh, a body thou hast prepared for me. The psalmist said, speaking illustrity of Christ, illustratively. A body thou hast, declared, hast prepared for me. I seek to do thy will, O God. But still, he was dedicated. Um, did he need to attend Passover? He is the Passover. But at the age of 12, he went up. Um, because that's what a righteous Jew would do. 
Did he attend synagogue? Yes, he was a reader in the synagogue. The synagogue is about him, but still he attended the synagogue. And did he need to be baptized? No. Why was he? To fulfill all righteousness because he is the perfect seed of Abraham. Born under the law, born of a woman. He is one of us and he submits himself to the law. For that matter, did he have to grow in wisdom and in knowledge? He did. He had to lay aside his glory and become like one of us. And he did everything that he should do. And so why is he baptized? Because he is the perfect Jew. Number two, because he validates the message of John. He said, amen. John, you said we need to return to scripture. Amen. John, you need to say we need to be repent and not just add law to our lives, but we need to turn. Amen. John said we need to receive the gift of forgiveness. And John said the king is coming. I agree with everything that the Old Testament has said. I will not, he, the Bible will not let us think for a moment that in any way Christianity is a split off and a sect of Judaism. No, Christianity is Judaism. And that if David were here and Abraham were here and Isaiah were here, they would become Christians. So he says, yes, also there is a typology. How many times in the Bible does God enter into the Jordan? Twice. The baptism of Christ. And when was the first one? You recall the book of Joshua? Israel comes out through Moses and the law, Moses, can lead you up to the land, but it can't take you in. Who has to take Israel into the land? It's not Moses, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. He'll take you in. We came out through the Red Sea. It parted. Is the power of God changed through a new generation? We go into the Jordan River and the Jordan parts. Why does the Jordan part? Because Christ, because Joshua goes down into the Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant, God himself goes down before the people. The priest took the Ark and brought it down and the Jordan parted. As a matter of fact, it said that the waters went all the way back to Adam, which was the city that was at the mouth of Galilee. The word Jordan means the waters, Jordan, the waters of judgment. And they went all the way back to Adam. You know, there's a hydrologic system in Israel that's very interesting. I couldn't tell the first service because they want to get out on time to get disinfected from you, okay? But the hydrologic system in Israel is the rains come down at Hermon, mountain in the north. They form three rivers and they come together at Galilee, the lake of Chinnereth, that means the harp, H-A-R-P. If you get on the top and look down, it looks just like a harp of God's blessings. And then it goes through a city called Adam, and it becomes through Adam the waters of judgment. And they go down to a sea where there is no life. It's called the Dead Sea. Actually, it's never called the Dead Sea. It's called the Salt Sea. Nothing grows and that's life, the blessing of God, Adam, the waters of judgment, hell. Unless God takes his place in the middle of the waters of judgment and they go all the way back to Adam and all of the people of God can enter in and are safe in the promise. Amen. Sound familiar? Yeshua. The Bible, remember, is baby talk of God talking to humans. All right? Adam, judgment. <laughs> it's not meant for philosophers. It's meant for, well, us, simple people. And so, once again, God takes his place in judgment, and the heavens are opened. Well, there's typology and also that he might be manifested to Israel. Three things are happening at his baptism. The Old Testament is pointing in John, this is him, the king is here. 
God the Father is going to speak from heaven and he's going to quote two verses. Psalm 2, this is my beloved son. Isaiah 42, in whom I'm well pleased. He's here. And then the Holy Spirit is going to descend. And so we have all that you need for salvation. We've got the Father, we've got the Son, and we've got the Holy Spirit. And we have the Old Testament saying, looky here. And then we have the faithful of Israel that have followed the Old Testament to the feet of Sinai. You dig? So all the components are here. Uh, give you another quote by Mr. Edersheim. Back in 1893, he said something interesting. He said, when in the Bible you see the humiliation of Jesus, it's always followed by a light show, by the spectacular might of God. For instance, Christ is conceived in a woman, and then you have the Magnificat of Mary. We have been visited by the sunrise from on high. You have him born and angels worship. You have him dedicated. Simeon and Anna speak prophetically. He's here. You have him at Passover, and then you have him surrounded by the teachers, amazed at his questions and his answers. How old was he? Twelve. That's a sixth grader. Think about that. A, a mature sixth grader? God has come. Then he is baptized. And when he is baptized, God speaks. The spirit descends. The Old Testament points. Spectacular. You see him die. And when he dies, the sun goes dark. The earth shakes. The tomb opens. Now in this age, is he being humiliated? Is Jesus being cursed from horizon to horizon? Yes, he is. He is being renounced. He is the only person in humanity whose name, whose very memory is illegal to mention in a great part of our earth. Is there going to be a light show? Have you read the end of the book? He's coming back. Yeah. That is the return. And so every time you will see humiliation, you will see God stepping in and saying, may I say something? And so, as Jesus is being baptized in verse 10, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Look here. The waters part. And in a sense, baptism is the dead rising. He rises up. And when he breaks the water, heaven opens. Do y'all see the picture? When um, the dead live, heaven is opened. We used to sing in crusade. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. And so God is now reconciled to men. You remember a guy named Jacob at his lowest point? He's got his head on a rock. He has been kicked out of his house. He's going where he doesn't know. And he has a dream and he sees the heavens opened. And he sees, our Bible says, a ladder. It's a pyramid, a ziggurat coming down from heaven to earth. What I think he saw was the holy city. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. God saying, I'm with you. I know where you are. And that is what happens right here. The heavens open and now God is about to be reunited with mankind. And so um, he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason Isaiah chapter 11. I'll just quote it to you. You don't have to worry about it. But in Isaiah 11, it says, There shall come the root of Jesse. My servant shall come, the Messiah. And it says, God will pour upon him the spirit of wisdom and the fear of God and of counsel and this and this. And it goes through seven elements of the power of the Holy Spirit. And God says, on my servant, I'm going to bestow my spirit. That is what the anointed means. The word anointed in Hebrew means Messiah. In the New Testament, it means the Christ. He's the chosen one. Who in the Old Testament was anointed for service, was given divine designation and the enablement of God's spirit. Three people, a 
a prophet because he spoke the truth, inspired by the Spirit of God, a priest because he was the designated person that stood between God and man to allow us to come, a prophet, a priest, and thirdly, you know who? A king, prophet, priest, and king, philosophy, religion, government. Those three things have to be in place. You've got to know truth, you've got to know God, and you've got to be ruled ethically by his, his authority, prophet, priest, and king. If you got that straight, you don't have to worry about Colin. You've got all that you need to know. And so only one guy in the Bible is prophet, priest, and king, and that's Jesus. And so he is anointed by the Spirit of God. As prophet, he tells us the truth. As priest, he offers himself. And as king, he rules us in the new covenant. Amen. We're set. Something also very interesting. There are two other prophets, priests, and kings. Actually, three others in the Bible. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day and he understood the universe because he was in the presence of God. Adam was a prophet. Adam had fellowship with God by the tree of life, ideally. Adam was a priest. And Adam was to rule the earth. He was prophet, priest, and king. Did Adam lose that through the fall? He became darkened to the truth. He was alien to God and outside of the garden. And he was now dominated by the prince of the power of the air. We lost it in Adam. God raised up a nation called Israel. Did Israel have the truth? Say yes. They were a nation of prophets. Did Israel know how to approach God? And could they tell the rest of the world how to approach God? Israel was a priest. They are called in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests. And Israel knew the will of God. They were to be ruled by God. They were prophets, priests, and kings. That's Israel. How did they do? They killed their God. And so now Christ, like the Adam of old that lost it, he is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. And as a result of our conversion, we become, in a sense, the new Israel. Are we now enlightened to the truth? Yes. Do we now have access to God, and can we introduce others to God, like priests? And will we rule with Christ, and are we ruled by him now? Yes, we will reign in life through Jesus Christ. We become the restoration of man, of what he is meant to be. Isn't that great? And so rightly is Christ anointed by God with his spirit. Well, we keep looking. Why like a dove in verse 10? It doesn't say the spirit descends a dove. No, it makes a great movie scene, a little white thing to settle on Jesus. But actually, it was probably, one has felt that it was like the Shekinah, the cloud and the fire. You remember whenever at the transfiguration, a cloud descended on them. It was the glory of God that came down. In the book of Ezekiel, whenever Israel rejects God, they're, ready, they're now in exile. It says that the presence of God leaves through the eastern gate and is gone. Well, the glory of God here is returning. This is why many think that when Christ was born, that those in the east saw a glory Standing above that house, the temple of God was now among men once again. And so the Spirit of God descends upon him, and this is the glory of God. And it descends as a dove, and that's key. Whenever you see the Holy Spirit descend upon anyone in the Old Testament, it's always a radical demonstration of the intervention and the overriding of that human by the power of God. Saul, the Spirit of God, descends upon him, and he prophesies, and he becomes another man. David, the Spirit of God, comes upon him mightily from that day forward. Um, Samson can tear a lion like a kid. Uh, Gideon is clothed with the Holy Spirit, 
and he goes from a questioner to one who sounds the trumpet and everybody responds. Uh, the Spirit of God at Pentecost, they speak miraculously in other languages. The Spirit is like a fire above them. It comes in like a rushing wind. These timid men are transformed into prophets. It's a radical demonstration of God's power. If you read your Bible and you were Spock, is that Mork and Mindy or is that Spock? That's Spock. That's Mork and Mindy. That's Spock. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> okay. Yeah, Spock is your rational Vulcan. Okay. If Spock was to read his Bible, he would say, Captain, y'all know that Spock is Jewish, don't you? <laughs> Leonard Nimoy, he is, he's Jewish. Uh, that's where, is that, isn't that what he always does? Huh? That is the sheen, the, the word of El Shaddai. And Leonard Nimoy saw that as a child. It's like this. Uh, the, the priest would always dismiss you from service with this. It was the sheen of El Shaddai. Okay. And so he just thought it would be a good sign. So he did. That's, you don't even have to tithe for that. All right. That's just a thrill. <laughs> but Spock would read and he would say, Captain, something is odd here. With every person the Holy Spirit descends upon, there is radical change, except for him. The Spirit descends, and it uses a term it never uses as a dove. It rests upon him very gently. You want a good picture of it? This is Cinderella's slipper. That's what it is. It's the perfect fit. There will be no Saul-like rebellion, no Gideon compromise, no Samson immorality, no Davidic adultery. There will be perfect compliance with this man. Uh, and also, is there another fellow in the Bible that a dove descends on him? Just one. Who is it? Noah. Noah rises from the waters of judgment, the Jordan. Noah rises from the waters. He looks to see if the new world has come. He sends out a raven. A raven is a scavenger. The raven's in heaven. There's dead stuff everywhere. It's Shoney's, all right? It's a delicatessen. It's a buffet. The raven never returns. The dove does not live on the past. The dove not, does not live on the old world. The dove doesn't live on death. The dove lives on life. It lives on grain. That's why if you go dove hunting out in Dublin, Texas, you don't stand where there's a pile of maize because a game warden may come by and hit you with a $100 fine. Okay, excuse me. Doves live on grain. And so a dove is not interested in dead stuff. He's interested in new life. And so he plucks an olive branch to make a nest. She, incidentally, the dove is called she. She's hum. And she will always come back to rest on Noah until a new world comes. Here is, you know what the word uh, rest means in Hebrew? It's the word Noah. And so here is the final Noah, the one that shall, Genesis 5, give us rest from the curse and the labor of our hands. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am gentle and meek in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Here is this last Noah that rises through the waters of death, and the Spirit of God descends upon him. There's a new world coming, and this is him. To the Romans, K. 
Can he fix this mess that we are in? He rises up. This is my son. You want another illustration? In Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was without form, void, and dark. And something moved over the face of the deep. The Spirit of the Lord moved. You know what the word move is in Hebrew? It's the word hover. It's the same word used in Deuteronomy that God hovered over Israel and kicked them out of the nest of Egypt and made them fly and made them mount up with eagle's wings. And so that same word is used. This was one Jewish commentators on the baptism of Jesus. He said that just as in the giving of the old world, the Spirit of God, not like Mother Nature, but like Father God, hovered over the creation to give it life. And once again in Christ, when we have a new world, we have here a dove descending. God is about to give life to his world. Isn't that interesting? One other has pointed out that the first miracle of Jesus is he changes something into wine at a wedding feast so the joy can go on. What does he change into wine? It is water. He changes water. How much water? Six water pots. Six is the number of man in the Bible. Seven is God and man reunited. Here you have six water pots, and they are for purification. They're just symbols. And now all of a sudden, let the party begin. God, Christ changes it from water into wine. One commentator said, the water saw its creator and blushed. And so once again, uh, God, the heavens opened and God has visited mankind. That is why probably at Pentecost, you hear something like a mighty rushing wind. It's the breath of God. I don't know if you know it, but in the Old Testament, whenever it speaks of the wind and the breath and the spirit, it's the same word. It's the word ruach. It sounds like what it is. God makes Adam and he is alive. God makes Abraham the father of a multitude and changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And there is life. Sarai, you are Sarah. There is life. Christ breathes on the 12. Receive the Holy Spirit. And here at Pentecost, a mighty rushing ruach. Life comes into his people. Amen. And so here's where it begins. The Spirit descends. Why did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? A lot of people wonder that. If this text did not say that Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit, we would have a problem. Question, do you and I need the Holy Spirit every day? You bet we do. Because we're men and women, we need enlightenment. We need a precise moral compass. We need a voice speaking to us. We need strength as we comply. If the Bible didn't begin the ministry of Jesus like this, Spock would have a problem. Captain, he's supposed to be a man like all the rest of mankind, yet from sin apart. Why does he not need the Holy Spirit? Jesus isn't Clark Kent. Remember that. Clark Kent isn't a man. He's just a disguise. He's really Superman. It's just Lois ain't sharp enough to figure that out. You know? Is this Superman? No, it's Clark. No, wait a minute. No, it's Superman. No, it's Clark. Brilliant, Lois. And so... Christ isn't a disguise. He's really a man. Now, don't try to work that out. 
how God and man can be one in the same body. That's the mystery of godliness. He that is, what did Paul say? Great is the mystery of godliness, he who is manifested in the flesh. So let it lie. But he will have to submit himself. Uh, Whenever he was offered to turn stones into bread, was he really hungry? Yes, he was. When it was said to him, take yourself down from the cross, did he enjoy the pain and alienation? He did not, because we wouldn't. But he obeyed, and God gave him grace. Don't ask. But he, that's why you and I can't say that he doesn't know what we're going through. He does. He has had to learn obedience by that which he suffered, just like us. Did he have to bury his father? We never see Joseph. He's gone. He had to bury his father. Did he have a family turn against him? Just like many of us have had. Did he have a nation that didn't want him around? Just like we have had. Did he have to obey God to the point of death? He did. So there's nothing you can go through that he can't say, I'm with you. You want a great illustration that I also couldn't share with the first service because they had to get out early because get disinfected? You remember when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart? That's not talking about take my yoke, not by somebody driving you that puts a yoke. Whenever you had oxen, you would always put the yoke over two of them. All right? You would take a young ox and you would take an older ox that knew the voice of the master and he would walk with you and he would guide that young one through that that had never been there. That's what Christ is talking about. He's the old ox. He knows the voice of the master. Take my yoke. It means this. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Walk with me. I'm going to walk you through this. How? I've been there. What are you going through? Been there. Done that. Walk with me. Ain't that something? And so, rightly is he anointed by the Holy Spirit. And if you'll notice in verse 11, God quotes scripture. This is one. Why does God? He doesn't have to go through scripture memorization, but he does. You are my beloved son. That is from Psalm 2. And you I am well pleased. That's from Isaiah 42. Now let me show you what that is. Go back to Psalm 2. I want you to see it. This is called a purely prophetic psalm. Some psalms are partially prophetic. And some are purely prophetic. This is purely prophetic. It is only speaking about Jesus, the son of David. In verse 1, David is writing prophetically, when the nations are in an uproar and the peoples devise a vain thing and the kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh and his Messiah. To refuse God is to refuse his king. This is painted in broad color in Revelation 19 when the kings of the earth are gathered against God and his Messiah. And in verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away. That is the nature of man and the nations. That's Russia and Germany and France and Israel and Syria and Assyria and America and all the rest. I will not submit to his word. I will not submit to his will. I will not submit to his values. I will not submit to his morality. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul, and I will not have this man rule, rule over me. That is man. In verse 4, what does God do in the face of human rejection? He that sits in the heavens laughs. It just tickles him. This is Mickey Mouse opposing God. I'm not going to do what you want to do. Hey, Pluto, let's rebel. He that sits in the heavens laughs and mocks in derision, and then God will speak to them in his anger. The Bible says that he will slay them with the breath of his mouth. 
and bring them to an end by the appearance of his coming. Don, you remember Dwight Pentecost? He used to say that God will simply say at Revelation 19, drop dead. And man will drop dead. As for me, verse 6, the Messiah now speaks. As for me, I'm sorry, this is the Father speaking. As for me, I have installed my King, Christ, upon Zion, Jerusalem, my holy mountain. It essentially means I don't care if the whole world doesn't want him. I am about to have a hostile overthrow of planet Earth. I will show up in Armageddon. I will slay the enemies. I will take my stand. I will cast the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire. I will put Satan in the pit, and I will begin my kingdom. Dad, burn it. Are you with me? God's going to win. And in verse 7, the Messiah speaks. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. The decree of God was the Davidic covenant that David's son would sit upon the throne. God goes back to his word. I will perform my word. I don't care what every person in the United Nations wants. If they're a United Nations united against God, I will stand against them. And I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That is a formula of coronation when a prince became a king. The father would say, thou art my son. You are not a usurper. You are not a pretender. You're not an Absalom. You're not an Adonijah. Y'all remember them? You are the Solomon. You are the king. He said to me, you are the king, but nobody else wants you. Doesn't matter what they want. Thou art my son. And today I have begotten you. That's when the king began his reign. Today, you are the begotten son. You are chosen. Whenever, has Charles stepped in to be king yet? He hadn't. Is his mama dead yet? My bad. Whenever she dies, Charles will become the king. And there will be a hoopla unlike you have ever seen. Because it will be saying, the queen is dead. God save the king. He is now the rightful king. This is not a takeover. This is not a usurper. This is not a coup. This is the king. And God says of Messiah, you are my son. That's why God speaks from heaven and says, thou art my son. It's not Gautama. He'd been around for 800 years by this time. It's not Hinduism. It had been around for 3,000 years by this time. It's not going to be the soon coming Islam. You're not going to be the guy. It's not going to be the Reverend Sun Mung Moon. It's not going to be David Koresh. You, Jesus, are my begotten son. Today, you begin your reign. And if you'll look at Isaiah chapter 42, go to your right a little. And Isaiah chapter 42, it is said of the Messiah, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in one in whom my soul is well pleased. This is looking at not just the divine person, but the servant of God, the human person that he became. My soul is well pleased. Question, does God believe that Jesus is divine? Yes, does God believe that he is fully human? Yes, he does. Does God believe that he has never sinned? Yes. And so God com combines Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, God and man. This is undiminished deity, perfect humanity, united in one person, without division, without confusion, forever the incarnation. 
And so heaven speaks. John the Baptist, the Old Testament says, this is him. The Father says, this is him. The Spirit says, this is him. What do you say? What do you say? I want to read you something, and I will close. I was so impressed with it last week, I'm going to read it again. This is Alfred Edersheim from 1853. No, 1893. And he writes about the Messiah, about the baptism of Jesus. And he says, Whether or not Jesus be the lion of the tribe of Judah, to him assuredly has been the gathering of the nations, and the islands have waited for his law. Passing the narrow bounds of obscure Judea and breaking down the walls of national prejudice and isolation, Jesus has made the sublimer teaching of the Old Testament the common possession of the world. Did y'all enjoy looking at Psalm 2, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 11, Noah? Well, Edersheim said in 1893, Jesus has made the sublime teaching of the Old Testament the common possession of the world. We enjoyed that this morning. And he has founded a great brotherhood of which the God of Israel is the Father. What do we call ourselves? Brothers and sisters in Christ of which God is our Father. Well, Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish scholar recognized in the 19th century. That's happened in our day. We've got a whole bunch of Gentiles talking about God our Father. He alone also has exhibited a life in which absolutely no fault could be found. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Nobody. They hired guys to bear witness and they couldn't agree on a testimony. He's perfect. He has promulgated a teaching to which absolutely no exception can be taken. Who can find a problem in the teaching of Jesus? I've asked non-Christians when I've witnessed to them, what about Jesus do you hate? What has he done to offend you? What part of sacrificing his life for you don't you like? The world, I'm sorry, his doctrine, the one absolute teaching. He is the one teaching of which is absolutely true. There is no flaw and nothing is to be added. The world has known none other, none equal, and the world has owned it, if not by the testimony of words, yet by the evidence of facts. Springing from such a people, born, living, and dying in circumstances, and using means the most unlikely of such results, the man of Nazareth has, by universal consent, been the mightiest factor in our world's history, politically, socially, intellectually, and morally. Edersheim is saying, whether you believe the teaching or not, you can believe it because of the facts. We have built the greatest civilization of all time on this man. If he be not the Messiah, he has at least thus far done the Messiah's work. Which means if he's not the Messiah, somebody better tell him. Because he's sure done the Messiah's work. And then he says, if he be not the Messiah, the world has not and the world never can have a Messiah. If he be not the Messiah, there has at least been none other before or after him. That's good. Father in heaven, thank you that you went overboard in these three sentences, speaking with such simplicity of what you have done for our sakes. And if there is a boy, girl, man, or a woman that needs a gospel of Mark, that frankly has made a mess of it, that has shot off their foot and their toe and their hand and their ankle and has crippled themselves and is limping through life, meant to be a prophet, a priest, and a king, but they have become erroneous and alienated and enslaved to sin. I pray that this day you would let them know 
that God has taken his place in judgment for us. The heavens have opened. God has spoken. Life has descended. The Old Testament has said, Amen. And new birth has occurred. That we can be washed clean from what we have done. And we can be baptized in the Holy Spirit of God. And we can have rebirth. Father, may they not say, say, take these cords away and cast these fetters from me. I choose to live in defiance of the Almighty and to know that they shall be cast into a lake of fire to burn with the rubbish and the thorns and the useless and the refuse of creation. Might God, they know this very day the life of Christ by simply inviting him into the cockpit to take over the wheel of their life. And Father, we'll ask this to the good of man and to the glory of God.